Hi there and welcome. You're listening to the Diving In podcast, brought to you by Virginia Seymour and Louise Jones. This podcast is part of a lifelong conversation between friends about the books we're reading and the issues they make us think about. That also goes for the movies and television we're watching and the podcasts we're currently hooked on. We might even talk about what's in the news and anything else we're diving into this week. Diving in. Lou, for our conversation today, we decided to talk about some more British books because we didn't even scratch the surface of fabulous British novels in the last episode. This time we have a new selection of writers. Some of them are old favourites and some of them are brand new to us. Yeah. Louise and I have some big cups of tea ready and we've got snacks. We've got Jat's biscuits filled with chocolate which surprisingly are incredibly delicious. They are, aren't they? I mean, you know, we try and have healthy snacks each week and, you know, we manage strawberries and rice crackers. <laughs> and blueberries. But I'm, I'm afraid today I have just gone nuts and we've got chocolate Ritz. And they're surprisingly good. They're delicious, aren't they? <laughs> that combination of sweet, salty, fat yeah, it's perfect. and crunch yeah, <laughs> all in sense. one snack. So me Nosra would be very proud of us. We've got it all in one biscuit. <laughs> so we hope everyone can join us. We're sitting here on a beautiful spring day here in Perth and we've got stacks of books everywhere. So make a cup of tea and sit down and join us in chatting about some really interesting books. So today I feel, look, I feel like I've been in the presence of greatness all week because I've just read two fantastic British writers. That's so cool, Lou. Yeah, I really have it. I've just felt, you know, sort of very much enriched Quite by uplifted. their writing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I read Ian McEwan's latest book, The Cockroach, and I also read Jesse Burton's latest book, The Confession. So I'll talk about The Cockroach. It was published this year by Jonathan Cape, which is an imprint of vintage. And some of you will have read Kafka's uh, Metamorphosis. can't remember whether I did it at school or at university, but I, I certainly read it as a teenager. It's the story of a salesman, Gregor Samsa, there's a clue in the name, who is close to exhaustion. And one day he wakes up to find that he has been transformed into a giant beetle. His family depend upon his income and they reject him because he can no longer earn any money and he eventually dies. It's quite sad. Yes. I've actually forgotten that he dies yeah, in the end. Yeah, he dies, mm. yeah. And, it, you know, that's the simplest su summary I can give. Obviously, there's a great deal more to it. It's all about sort of existential angst, isn't yes, it? Yes, <laughs> it is. To, yeah, no, it's sort of the mental condition. That, yes, yeah. and the physical and the mental being aligned. Yeah, and exactly. The Cockroach is McEwan's satirical book, which is directed squarely at Brexit, but he kind of reverses Kafka's premise. So in his story, the Cockroach, and many others no doubt, is a resident of the Palace of Westminster in Britain. So that's the Houses of Parliament. And then somehow during the night, as part of, we're led to believe, sort of a collective spirit, the Cockroach is somehow transformed into Jim Sams, who is the Prime <laughs> Minister of Britain. It's fantastic, isn't it? Is. It is. Really? It's really clever. Fantastic. Fantastic. So rather than create the actual facts and the minutiae of Brexit, McEwen sort of created the existence of these two opposing political and economic ideologies. So on the one hand, 
we have the clockwise camp in which the flow of money moves in the conventional way that we're used to it. People earn wages, they're taxed, and they expend their income on goods and services. And the other camp are the reversalists. <laughs> and they believe that in order to make Britain a strong economy, in order to make Britain great, great again, I was about to say great that. again, <laughs> the flow of money needs to be switched. People shop for whatever they want. They derive an income from shopping, if only. <laughs> and with this income, they can purchase their jobs. So the more you shop, the better job you can buy. <laughs> so in terms of international trade, in a reversalist economy, Britain would pay to export its goods to another country and it, it would then be paid by other nations when it imports their goods. It's genius, <laughs> isn't it? It's, it's actually genius. quite clever. Yeah. yeah. And extremely silly at the same time. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I mean, the, the sad thing is the hoarding of cash yeah. is, is prohibited <laughs> yeah. by law. So you have to spend whatever you earn and if you're wealthy, you have to spend your money on gainful employment. Look, this is a novella. It's only 100 pages, so I actually can't tell you a great deal more about it because I've already given you, you know, a fair bit of the plot. There are some predictable cameos from a few characters, including the President of the United States, who is called Archie Tucker. So no, no <laughs> prizes for guessing who he might be modelled on. And then there's also an international incident with a European neighbour as well. And it's, it's very funny. It's completely absurd. And one of the chapters has McEwan's short history of reversalism, uh, you know, which factions of which parties have previously supported it. And, and I actually think that's a really clever chapter that he's included in there. But, you know, I think I mentioned this to you before, Ginny, uh, McEwen has faced some criticism for this book from some sort of more serious reviewers. They don't think that he has got some of the finer details about parliamentary process right. And th their premise is that this plot is so implausible that he should have paid attention to those other details. I just have to disagree with that. Yeah, I it's just don't think that's isn't it? the point at all. No. It's meant to be silly and absurd and Yeah, and I don't, I, I don't think you're sitting there thinking, oh, gosh, the Prime Minister was a cockroach. Why is the Foreign Secretary sitting in the wrong place in Cabinet? It, it just, <laughs> it, you just don't... <laughs> You, you don't just care. Don't, you don't care at all. And some have also suggested that this, as an analogy of Brexit, is too far-fetched. <laughs> you know? No, it's not too far-fetched. No, it's far-fetched, but it's meant to be yeah, far-fetched. because Brexit is far-fetched. Exactly. So, you know, <laughs> Brexit's obviously reversing British membership of the EU and all that comes with that. I'm trying to remember, does he have an Irish backstop in the cockroach? <laughs> <laughs> well, there, you know, there's obviously... Discussions about hard borders. And, yeah, and things yeah, that's like that. true. Yes, yeah. I'd forgotten. <laughs> um, but the reality is, is that you know he has written this implausible tale, and he's asking us to completely suspend our belief. He's obviously observed that Brexit is a complete farce, regardless of your politics, and something that we all would have thought was completely implausible X number of we years ago. We would never have believed that no, it would roll exactly. out this way exactly. if, you, if we'd been told in advance. Um, we talk all the time about life imitating art, but this is really art imitating life, and it's a funny book, it's a cynical book, and it's a quick, enjoyable read. I loved it because, and I, I haven't read any reviews or criticisms of it, so I'm really interested to hear that that's what you've uncovered when you mm. were looking into it. I did hear one podcast, a bookish podcast, speaking about it, and they said they, they just both described it as a very angry book. And I 
that sort of mm. took me back because I didn't sense anger, but no. I did sense that I had an image of him becoming completely infuriated yeah. at some point yeah. in this whole history, yeah. recent history, and just going into his study, sitting down at the laptop and just punching out this angry... Yeah, absolutely. And he would have done it quite quickly. Yeah, and just getting it all off his chest. This is just absurd. It's ridiculous. Mm. These people are a bunch of fools. Are, you know, people in Britain are exhausted by it, really. Yes, and, yes. and incredulous. Yes. It's the incredulity yes. that this is actually happening. Yes. And, and by that, I'm actually not talking about Britain leaving the EU... You know, no. It's just people the, have the, different views on that. The process. It's, it's the process is mm. just farcical. It is, and, yes. And so he has created something. Yeah. Well, he's holding a mirror up to society, which I think is what a good author should do yeah, from exactly. time to time exactly. and make us look at ourselves. And by doing it, I mean, ridicule is such a great way of doing that, I think, mm. with individuals or groups. Or if you can make a, a really good joke and ridicule something, it really brings home to people the absurdity of it. Yeah, absolutely. In a way that maybe being serious about it doesn't. Yeah, exactly. Well, people would switch off. Yes. Whereas, Whereas this you know, is quite entertaining. It's extremely entertaining. Because everyone's thinking, oh, yeah. politicians yeah. being an insect. Oh. Yeah. No, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great read. Yes. Um, yeah. No, I thought it was great. So while I have another chocolate biscuit, you can tell us what you've <laughs> been <Chocolate> reading. <laughs> I have been reading Someone at a Distance by Dorothy Whipple. So this is a Persephone classic and I'll post a photo of it because it's the most gorgeous edition. I first uh, learned about Persephone books quite a few years ago now and as soon as I went onto their website I was completely hooked. They're an independent publishing house in Britain and they have the most beautiful retail shop mm. in Lamb's Conduit Street in Bloomsbury in London. And they print mainly forgotten female writers of the 20th century mm or writers who may have been out of fashion for a time. Mm. And they do have a few male authors in their list, but I'd say 95 96% of their publications are female writers. And I've read quite a few of their books and I've enjoyed all of them. And because I love all of their books, I've discovered several writers that might otherwise have passed me by. And their, their books are so beautiful because... They have a uniform grey cover and then they use fabrics that date from the time of the original publication of the books as the inside cover art, the end papers. Yes, I, I, that's, I wondered what that was called. So yeah. the inside art is called the end paper. Yes, and not it? all books do that, although I think publishers are becoming more aware that people value books as an object, yeah, an, absolutely, an art object, yeah. and so a lot of care is going into That's making beautiful, books beautiful. So this classic edition also comes as a grey edition, and that's the inside art is not black and white, it's the actual colours of, yes. the, of the fabric of the time, so it's all kept, to, it's all very authentic. And they also come with a very cute matching bookmark in the same design, which is a rather sweet mm. touch. And I know we're going to talk about books that would make lovely Christmas presents in our next episode, but I thought I might mention Persephone books today because of Christmas postage times, because yeah. these books make lovely gifts. They're quite distinctive looking. And the other thing that Persephone do is they have a system whereby you can order in advance a book a month for either six mm, months or 12 months, mm. which is such a lovely gift to give it someone is. and sort of an ongoing gift. And you can select 
from their list and they've got hundreds of books now. They bring out a few new ones. It's very heartening, isn't it, that a publisher like this is still going? Yes. You yes. Know, a, that some of the literature they're publishing certainly in the past has been quite obscure. Yes. The authors have not been well known and, you know, it's such a high production value in the books themselves yes. with the artwork. It's, and it's, there's a market for it. Yeah, People it's love it. fantastic, isn't it? And I was watching a video... On Instagram yesterday, a girl called Francesca Bowman, who I think might be Nicola Bowman's daughter. Nicola Bowman set up Persephone, and I think it's her daughter running the bookshop. And she talks about two books that were released at the same time, one of which was enormously successful at the time, but then went out of popularity and was disappeared. Another book that was released at the same time was not that commercially successful, but has never been out of print, which was The Great Gatsby. Wow. And she was saying... She was posing the question, who gets to decide yes. the literary canon? Yeah. And, of course, How by setting up this publishing house, Nicola Bowman and her colleagues are deciding They're the literary canon, it. which yeah. I think is wonderful. Yeah, it is wonderful. If you, if you think, what a shame we're not getting these books, to actually say, well, I'm going to do it. Yeah. I'm going to step in and create yeah. a public. That's quite an undertaking. It's yeah. really to be commended. So... These do make a a lovely gift. If you want to give someone a six-month order, you can pre-select six books and then every month a beautiful new Persephone book arrives in the mail for that person. And the titles are not likely to be ones that the recipient has already read. So if you've got someone who's hard to buy for for Christmas who's a keen reader, you'd be pretty safe with one of these. So one of the authors that I've discovered through Persephone Books is Dorothy Whipple. She published about eight or nine novels and a few collections of short stories and Someone at a Distance was her last novel. So she was born in 1893 and she went to work as a secretary for a man called Henry Whipple and he was a widower, 24 years older than her, and she married him in 1917 when she was 24. And I think that not very much is known about her other than that because I've sort of looked around and there doesn't seem to be much information about her. I don't think there's a biography of her. Um, I'm sure there's many more interesting things about her than the fact that she married a man much older than her. But she didn't have children and um, she certainly has a very strong following amongst readers because her books are beautiful. Someone at a Distance is a quiet, gentle book about a family and the damage that one interloper had on that family as a whole and on each member of the family. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So this is a well-to-do family. It's set just after the end of World War II. They live outside London and there's a husband named Avery and he commutes to his publishing business in London and he has a wife named Ellen and she runs the house and garden and they have a very large property. They have a pony for their 15-year-old daughter and she's away at boarding school in term time and there's a an older son who's doing his compulsory army service before heading off to Oxford. So they have a fabulous life and the only two problems in their lives are trying to find domestic help for the house. Which First I world gather, problems. Yeah, it became a real problem yes. for people who had these huge houses and properties and suddenly after the war no one was willing mm. to come and be a domestic maid. So their solution was to have two dailies Oh, really? Yes. Yeah. So that was that was sort of a compromise. Can you imagine having two dailies? <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? Every day to two... brush up our biscuit crumbs, yeah. Virginia. <laughs> Clean up the Jats crumbs. <laughs> it's just, it's another world. 
So that was one of their problems. And the other problem was dealing with the husband's very cranky widowed mother. And she is a very wealthy woman who lives nearby in this enormous home and she has servants. But every time she sees her family, she complains that she doesn't see them enough. Of course she does. So the difficult grandmother decides to advertise for a companion, as one did Mm. in those days. This book was written in 1953. I'm assuming it was sort of set a few years prior to that. And a young French girl named Louise answers the advertisement and she goes to stay with the old lady. And this young French woman has had a secret relationship with the son of a very wealthy man in her small French village. Ah. And because she's from a poor family, her parents own a little stationery shop, he has broken off the relationship And he's gone and married the wealthy girl in the village. So Louise becomes a companion to the old lady. She's very bitter and vengeful and she pretty much has nothing to lose. Yes. And that's a really dangerous combination. Yeah. And she's been described as an Emma Bovary character. So if you liked Madame Bovary, um, Flaubert's book, this book might appeal because there are some strong similarities. So Louise proceeds to ingratiate herself with Avery's cantankerous old mother and she sits around doing nothing and making all the maids do all the work. And after a while, she fulfills her obligations and she goes back home to her French village and she's sort of resigned to the fact that she might have to marry the only man in the village who's asked her. Mm. And then the old lady dies unexpectedly and it turns out that Louise has inherited a thousand pounds. Which is not an inconsiderable sum. Yes and I did a calculation and it's 27,000 pounds in today's money. Wow yeah. A thousand pounds in 1953 is 27,000 pounds in 2019. So she promptly heads back to England to collect her money and all the fur coats and jewellery that she's also inherited and she goes to stay with Avery and Ellen while she waits for probate to come through. But basically she never goes home. And the family are very British and they're too polite to ask her to go home. So she just stays and stays. Is she working for them at all? or She's just sitting around with a box of chocolates in the living room. With a fur on. Yeah, with her furs and jewels saying, I don't want to go home until my money comes through. And they're too polite to do anything about Mm. it. And then eventually matters develop between her and Avery, the husband. And the whole house of cards comes tumbling down. Mm. And that's not a spoiler because it's sort of flagged in the beginning of the book. Mm. I think the reader knows this is coming. It's fairly obvious. The signposts are all there in terms of the descriptions of Avery's character. Mm. But it's an excellent book. Dorothy Whipple has a very good understanding of the fallibility of humans. And in particular in this novel, Pride and also Shame Uh, because they both cause so much damage. Mm. And both Avery and Ellen are victims of their own pride Mm. and Avery in particular is a victim of his own shame. And it's a beautiful exploration of the harm that one sort of foolish and selfish girl can do to an otherwise smart and successful mm. family and the fact that they allowed that Yes, they allowed happen. it to happen. It's beautifully written and it's got a, a really good ending that is a little bit up in the air and a little bit satisfying. It's actually quite a clever ending, mm. so I would really recommend that one. It was a delight. 
So the other book that I've read this week, Virginia, is The Confession by Jessie Burton. Uh, many will, of you will have read Jessie Burton before. So she's the author of a few books. Most well-known probably is The Miniaturist. Uh, she also wrote The Muse and she's written some children's books. And she's actually written some essays as well. She's probably best known for her debut novel, which was The Miniaturist which was inspired by the Ortman Dolls House in Amsterdam's Rijk Museum. And I believe you've been to yes, see it, Yes, I you? have. I, after reading the book, I really wanted to see it because we were going to Amsterdam. So that was one of the first places we headed. It was the Rijks Museum. I tootled up to the floor where the dolls' houses are. There were more than one. Yes. But that one that inspired the book is definitely the best. And it's incredibly intricate incredibly beautiful and you they've created these little wooden steps and a plinth that you walk up and across so that you can actually look at it in greater depth so you can see into it yeah so there's a little bit of a cue that's how popular it is like the Mona Lisa yeah it's really worth doing I mean it's a beautiful museum as well because it has the most incredible library and you walk in and you're up on the mezzanine area right and it's often photographed. It's just quite incredible. So that's another part of the museum that's really worth. So is the visiting. library on the bottom? Do you look over it's the library? Both. Oh wow! It goes. It keeps the, going. The, the walls way up, go the right go up. up. Massive. Wow! How beautiful. Many stories. How high. beautiful. Yeah. yeah, that's lovely. Well, her new novel, The Confession, was published in September by Picador, which is an imprint of Pan Macmillan, and it's got this beautiful blue, dreamy cover with a pretty green rabbit on it, and the rabbit is of some significance in the book. So it's a beautifully. Mystery, I'd call it a mystery, of three women, Rose, Constance, and Elise. And woven through the book, there's sort of themes of motherhood, abandonment, female relationships, and empowerment. And the book follows the alternate narratives of Elise and Rose, and they're both written in the first person, and yet for probably the most of the book, it's sort of the personality and force of Constance who dominates the book. Burton's created three sort of very distinctive protagonists in The Three Women, and they're all, I think, very clearly drawn characters. The beginning of the book is in the 1980s. It opens in 1980, and Elise is 20, and she's waiting for a blind date uh, on Hampstead Heath in London, and she's young and she's beautiful and she's impressionable. But instead of the date, she meets a worldly novelist, Constance Holden, who is 16 years her senior. And Elise is really drawn to Constance, who takes charge immediately, and they begin this very intense relationship. And Elise is completely infatuated, and she gives herself over to Constance almost immediately. And yet, at the same time, she kind of questions and resents herself for doing so. So within two years, they're still together, And Constance is moving to Los Angeles, where her hugely successful novel, The Wax Heart, is to be made into a Hollywood movie. And Elise is riddled with insecurities. She knows she's losing her sense of herself and her independence in this relationship with Connie, but she does so willingly because she loves her. So she goes with her to L.A., and it's in L.A. that we meet sort of a cast of very colourful characters that enter their social circle. And I'll leave that relationship there. So the book, as I said, is written in this sort of dual time frame. It shifts between the 1980s and the present day. And in 2017, we meet the 33-year-old Rose. And are we back in America or England? We're back in England. Rose is, she's a bit adrift 
and she's not particularly happy with the direction of her life and she's not happy with her job, she's not happy with her relationship with Joe, her partner. She's been raised by her father alone because her mother disappeared when she was a baby and you're aware pretty early on that this is kind of the roadblock in Rose's life preventing her from moving on. So her and Joe go to visit her father in France for the weekend and uh, this is where he, he now lives in France because he likes to be near the water. And he asks her if she knows of the novels of Constance Holden. And he tells her that Constance was a sort of charismatic novelist who was very close to her mother. And this, of course, is the first time that Rose has heard this. And he, he thinks that Constance was possibly the very last person to see Rose's mother before she disappeared. Oh. So this is a revelation to Rose. And we learn very early on in the book that Constance's young lover, Elise, is in fact Rose's missing oh. mother. Yeah. So the book is largely Rose embarking on a journey to discover I what's happened to her mother. Yeah. yeah. And embarking to find her or to become closer to her. And I'm not going to tell you how she goes about doing that. This sounds good, Lou. It is good. It is a good book. But I, I think you really find yourself cheering for Rose. You know, you, yeah. you want her to find out what's happened and, and to be to able Elise. to move on, I yeah, imagine. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's the reason, because yes. you, you want her to be able to move on. And I think what Jessie Burton does really well, and this is you know evident in her other books as well, is sort of this psychology of self and psychology of relationships. Rose's relationship with her father is such a small part of the book, but it's extremely well drawn by Burton and it feels really authentic. Mm, there's such an art to that. You know, there is. He wants to sort of protect his daughter as she has grown up and she, of course, increasingly wants more information about her mother. Yeah. And she's obsessed with working out why her mother left, but then she doesn't want to push her father for more information. So it's this sort of mm. restraint between them, but it's perfectly um, written. And also Rose's internal dialogue and her insecurities and her feelings, it's very authentic. And I think that's partly because Burton's language is, it's very easy. And you're going along for the ride with Rose as she works stuff out and as she grows and perhaps also as she emboldens. And it's all very natural. Mm. And for me, so the last word on this, I think, is that Rose is clearly on a quest to find her mother, but really maybe the primary quest is to find herself. And, you know, you really do get hooked into the mystery of it. She keeps the mystery going right to the end of the book. Occasionally, I wanted the resolution to come a little <laughs> bit more quickly. I don't know that that's a fault in the book. I think it's a fault in the reader. <laughs> because I was completely absorbed by it and I enjoyed it it's very much. It's such a good sign, though, because it keeps you turning the pages and you're hooked. Yeah, absolutely. So what else have you been reading? Uh, the other one that I have been reading is a book called To Calais in Ordinary Time by James Meek. And I wanted to read this after I read an article in The Spectator that came out recently, and it was one of those pre-Christmas articles. It's one of two parts where they had asked various critics and commentators and writers to name the best book they had read in 2019. And two different people, uh, an author, Philip Hensher, and an author, Jenny Colgan, both said that this book was the best book they had read this year. And I hadn't heard of it, I hadn't seen it, and I was completely mystified because I feel as though I do keep a bit of a good eye out on new releases, and this just had not come across my horizon at all, so that made me want to go and investigate further. And I haven't read James Meek before. He was 
uh, long listed for the booker for one of his previous books. And having read this, I'm quite interested to read more of his work because I really enjoyed it. It takes place in 1348. Oh, wow. So it's in medieval England, not not an area that we read about no, very often. No. <laughs> and it's at the time of the Black Death, which is mm. the bubonic plague, which was estimated now, they think, to have killed between 75 to 200 million people in That's Europe. That's just extraordinary. Over a seven-year yeah. period. It well, is it's just, it's hard it's, to get your head around is. how many people died. So it was spread by the bite of infected rat fleas. So it wasn't spread from person to person. No. And it was a pandemic that's been described as one of the greatest cataclysms of human history. Mm. So the storyline in this novel is a little bit like Chaucer's The Canterbury Tales. Oh, yeah. There's a group of people, quite a disparate group of people, all heading to Calais. And they're on foot or they're with horses or with handcarts. And they start in a medieval village in Gloucestershire. And they've all got a different motive for wanting to go to Calais. So one of the people there is a young maiden named Bernadine. And she's running away from an arranged marriage to a much older man. There's a young man called Will, and he's a farmer, he's a ploughman, and he's one of the best bowmen in the county. Mm. And he's been sent to help defend Calais, because Calais has been won from the French. Uh, he's a serf, and he desperately wants to get his, or be granted his papers, that will make him a free, free man. man. Yep. And then there's Thomas, who's a Scottish ecclesiastical proctor, and he's been sent to take confession from the bowmen in case they're struck down with the Black Death. Okay. One of the key things about this book is the language. It's a book for people who love words and language. The proctor narrates his chapters in very educated English with a lot of Latin. Uh, Bernadine, who's an aristocrat, narrates a lot of hers using a lot of French words. And then Will, the farmer, speaks with a much more vernacular English. But somehow James Meek has managed to weave all of these different classes together. And these people all come from the same area, a very small area of England, and they might as well be speaking different languages, entirely different languages, and yet he weaves them into a sort of one harmonious tale, which is quite a feat. It has a lot of words in it that I've never heard of. There's a lot of medieval words. So it's, it is, it does involve a bit of work. Yeah. There's an interesting sort of plot throughout this book where Bernadine, the young Bernadine who's running away from her marriage, her wedding dress has been stolen. And it's a very distinctive wedding dress. It's a long white gown. It has a hood yeah. and it has coloured embroidered flowers moving up from the hem. And so her father, he's irate that someone has stolen it. He's threatening that if he ever finds out who's stolen it, they'll be killed. And he orders another identical wedding dress to be made. And so there are now two identical wedding dresses that end up on the pilgrimage to Calais. And this creates lots of fun and confusion because the person who stole the first wedding dress is a swine herd named <laughs> Hab. And he goes about with this enormous pig. So everywhere you see him, he's got this enormous pig sort of beside mm. him. And Hab has some gender fluidity and takes on the persona of a woman named Madeline. And he, Madeline claims to be Hab's sister. <laughs> 
But everyone from the village has known Hab since he was a baby and they all know that Hab does not have a sister called Madeline. Yes. And they never see Hab and Madeline together. Yeah. And they all know in their heart of hearts that there are not two people, yet somehow they all do seem to accept Madeline as being a woman. In this role, yes. And Madeline, when she is dressed up in the stolen wedding dress, looks identical to Bernadine. So this creates lots of confusion for people. Sometimes they think they've drunk too much mead and they're seeing double because <laughs> uh, Madeline will go galloping past on a horse in this flowing wedding dress. There goes Bernadine. And then a few minutes later, Bernadine will go past <laughs> yeah. in the identical wedding dress and they... They cannot work it out. And then the other interesting thing that he does with this is he creates some funny scenes where people think they're talking to Madeline, the lowly swineherd's sister, and they speak to aristocratic Bernadine in a completely different way. Wow, okay. So it's all about class and how we treat people and it does create some quite interesting scenes. So on the road, this little group that is setting out from Gloucestershire meet up with a group of bowmen who um, have fought in the Battle of Crecy in 1346. It's mm. a very famous battle, I gather. And just coincidentally, I have no idea why this happened, but I just happened to read the book, The Battle of Crecy by Ronald Welch. It was actually the first book that I read this year. And that's the most fascinating story because the bowmen used longbows rather than crossbows and they were vastly outnumbered by the French, but they recruited this huge band of forest outlaws mm. who were very proficient over the longbow and they could hurl 20,000 shafts in one minute with a deadly accuracy at a range of 200 paces. Wow. So it's actually Robin Hood. Yes. It's mm. fascinating. And so that was how they beat the French. Mm. So this group of bowmen have been at that battle and they've won a lot of accolades and they're held in quite high regard for that reason. But one of the bowmen is holding a French girl, more or less captive, as a spoil of war. And one of the issues in the book is that there are issues of rape and the treatment of Cecile, this French girl, that are extremely unpalatable. Mm. So this book is definitely not for everybody. I was, I was going to say, until you'd mentioned that, that it does have the feel almost of a play, like they're an ensemble and almost the costume of the wedding dress. It's yes. got that sort of feel. Yes, I of, felt like I was in a bit of a British pantomime yes, almost. Yeah, so you can see, you mentioned Chaucer and it's sort yes. of got that kind of feeling of the... He's managed to create that feel. Yeah, and, the, and the ribaldness as well. It's very bawdy. Yes. But with these very dark undertones. Yeah, okay. So it's a book about class divisions. It's about human beings' desire to be free. It's about gender and identity, the place of women in society, and it's also about a society that's dealing with a cataclysm over which it has no control, uh, which is the plague which uh, started in Europe and has been advancing and has now finally landed in England, and everybody can see it coming. So it has definite echoes of modern events, you know, things like sexual identity, gender identity, things that are very topical mm. now. And I would say possibly it could be argued global warming might yes, be our climate looming, change, might be our cataclysm problem. that yeah. we're not dealing with. And there's also this issue of Britain, which is separate from Europe, yes. yet very proximate and yeah. the interconnection there. So 
the plague sort of descends through the shipping trade, through rats on the ships. So there's possibly also a bit of Brexit in there as well. Mm. So it's not a book for everyone. It's described as intelligent historical fiction and you do have to work a bit and I quite like that. It's yeah. quite rewarding but it's not an easy read. Right. You don't breeze through it. But, yeah, I'm glad I read it. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. Very interesting. So what have you been diving into, Lou? Uh, well, I've been binging on The Crown this week, which oh, I won't yes. talk about because... Not everybody will have watched it and not everybody has Netflix anyway. I am wondering about Helena Bonham Carter. Yes, I know. I know. There's She's a few not what I'm I would have picked about. for Princess Margaret. I know. I haven't started yet. I'm so keen. Yes. But... So it would be, be interesting to see what you think. Yeah. I have, I'm afraid, sat down uh, with my son and watched all of it. Look, it's, I don't know if it's chicken and egg. I don't know if you've noticed because even on free-to-air television, because I think of the release of The Crown, they've been releasing all these other sort of British monarchy and royal... Because people have become interested again. Yeah, so we've got documentary after documentary on the television at the moment and there's articles in the papers and it's just interesting how... It's fascinating. ...how the release of a television series on a streaming service has influenced... Whatever everyone I else is doing. I have exactly noticed that. And people who are not royalists, so who would not normally show any interest in the doings of the royal family, are now talking about the royals and the Queen and Prince Philip yeah, and their no, marriage. Fascinating. And also I think the all the issues with Prince Andrew's of train course. wreck uh, interview. Yeah. Could not have come at a better time for the media. But Netflix also must just be thinking, this is gold. Rubbing their hands. This thinking, is gold What for else them. can Prince Andrew do Yeah, it's <laughs> to advance our incredible, ratings? Incredible, really, isn't because it? Because everyone is just so intrigued by yeah. these people that have no idea about the rest just of society absolutely. and the rest of the for, world. And actually particularly interesting given that where the series is now at yes. as well in terms yeah, of the royal family in the sort of 70s. It's fascinating. Mm. So, yeah, I'm not, not going to go into those episodes. But the other thing I did this week is I returned to the podcast How to Fail with Elizabeth Day. Oh, yes, I love that. And I listen to that podcast regularly, as I know you do too, Ginny. Uh, it's a favourite of both of us. Yeah. It's a highly successful podcast. It's got huge reach. And that is down to Elizabeth Day. She's a British journalist and author, and she's written extensively about failure and basically this stuff in our lives that doesn't go as well as it could. And she asks her guests to nominate periods or events in their lives where they failed. And she reflects with them, I guess, on the depths of the failure and also what they've learned or whether they've changed as a result of it or grown. And I think that's her essential message, really, that with failure comes growth. Yeah. And really we need to fail in life. We all need to fail. But she's incredibly warm, isn't she? She is. She always engages with her interviewee very beautifully, I feel. she does too. I agree. She's able to sort of delve into really personal stuff with them. But it doesn't sound intrusive. No, it's not intrusive, but it's intimate and it's respectful, isn't Mm, it, really? She's very respectful. And you get drawn into the conversation that they have. I guess also because people know, or she's been quite open about her own issues. Yes, yes. So she's not coming to the table and just, I'm here to pry. No. We're both here to talk about the same things, which is the things that didn't go right in our lives. And not in a sort of look at me sort of a way, but she does talk about her own failures through the episodes, doesn't she? So the podcast, I think, is in its eighth series, but I went back after I read the Jesse Burton's The Confession, I went back to series two to listen to her interview with Jesse Burton. And actually, 
you know, with hindsight, what Burton reveals about herself is really illuminating, having, uh. having read the book this week. So she talks about growing up as an only child. So she said she didn't really learn from having siblings that you can have conflict and then recover from it. And she says that that really had an impact on her relationships well into her 20s, Mm. Uh, her sort of inability to recover from something that at the time she thought was catastrophic. Yeah, whereas Um, we can bicker with our siblings and then just forget about it and move on. Absolutely. And you learn that if you learn that as a younger child when the argument perhaps isn't as important. Mm -hmm. So she was the first person in her family to go to university. She was a smart kid. She did well at school. And then I think she went to Cambridge or Oxford. But, you know, the expectations were ones that she had created for herself. She had very high expectations for herself, but she says that emotionally she wasn't particularly sophisticated and it sort of took her a very long time to learn about safeguarding herself and her own happiness and fulfilment whenever she was in a relationship. And I think that's actually really interesting given one of the characters in The Confession and Ah. how deftly, you know, she's able to write about the dynamics of power in relationships. So that really gave me a new Mm. kind of perspective on, on, on that. And, you know, she talks with Elizabeth Day about what it means to feel as though you've been successful as a woman and this idea that probably still pervades that many women feel that ultimately happiness only comes in the form of a romantic relationship and the fact that we as women many of us still place a very high premium upon being loved and I think it's true and again particularly for one of the characters for the character Rose to be honest in the confession she's asking all these questions about herself and there are certainly parallels there in terms of Mm. her Uh, experience and growth in the book and how she's not happy with a partner she's not happy with her job it's just it's fascinating it really did give me a sort of a new new perspective on the writing so after she left university jesse burton she was desperate to become an actress and she got a few parts but she just couldn't make a success of it but there was sort of no income in her family her family didn't have money so she needed an income and she became a pa to somebody in the city of london i think and just was completely underfulfilled so she says that writing was, in fact, her last resort, which is extraordinary. I know. I mean, you think how successful she has oh, been. incredible. So she sort of thought it was her last chance to make a success of herself creatively. And then, of course, she wrote The Miniaturist. Yes. Yeah, I think in maybe 2013, published in 2014, and it just became this bestseller literally overnight. I mean, people say that, but it literally was. And there was a huge bidding war for the book, mm-hmm. and it sold over a million copies in its first year. Mm-hmm. And she just says she was completely and totally unprepared for what to do with that success. And I know it's first world problems because obviously she was this extremely successful author, but she said she really wasn't a successful author. She'd written one book and she was immediately expected to know how to, you know, how one writes a novel. People wanted to know her secrets. Like, do, yeah. you, do you map out your book? Or yeah, do you... and, and she'd just written it, yeah. you know. And so she had 18 months of every day there'd be these engagements. And, and really at the end of it, you know, she really, she cracked. And she has a website, Jessie Burton, as a lot of authors we're finding yeah. now do. I think their publishers make them do it. Yeah, I think you're probably right. But there's an essay on there where she talks about success ah. and sort of 
creative success and failure and it's fascinating actually and oh, okay. she wrote it i think in 2015 after she'd had i don't know i don't know if breakdown is too strong a word but after she'd struggled with the publicity wow. for the miniaturist and it's very very interesting mm. and particularly as i said in light of the characters yes, that are yes. in the confession i haven't listened to that episode so i'm going to go back and yeah. look for that one now and i really want to read that book because that sounds fantastic yeah no it's a beautiful book what else have you been diving into, Virginia? I've been listening to the podcast, Where Should We Begin? with oh, yeah. Esther Perel. Esther Perel is a Belgian therapist. Her parents were Holocaust survivors and she moved to New York and she's married, she's got two children and after her little boys were a bit older, you know, eight and five, she decided to build up a career and she became a therapist and she is very good. So these podcasts are one-off sessions with married couples mostly, I think. There might be some individuals later on. The ones I've listened to have all been married couples who are struggling and their identities have been concealed. Mm. So they're very forthcoming about the problem. So it might be infidelity or it might be an addiction or it might be that they met in circumstances where they were both from a particular religious group and then they've left that religious group and they're struggling to create a new identity away from that. All sorts of really interesting mm. different types of problems. And they're fascinating to listen to, particularly because of Esther Perel's interventions. Mm. So she sort of says to them, where shall we begin? And off they go. And I think the sessions must go for quite some time. Like there might be a whole morning and then they're edited, I think. But she knows exactly the right thing to say at exactly the right moment, whether it's to recast or reframe something and help people, one or other of the parties, see things differently. In a different light, yeah. And she often says, you know, who told you that story? And it's, oh, you know, wow. the stories we tell ourselves about why we do things or how we think things should be. Yeah. And so she often challenges people to sort of think... Their mm, assumptions Maybe or... that isn't the way everything's meant to be. Or she might challenge assumptions that they've made about another person. And she also gives very frank feedback and perhaps criticism. So there's always something that you can take away. Mm. Even if you have a happy marriage, I think I've found listening to them that they're very useful in terms of little pieces of advice about how the other person might think and mm. feel in relation to something you are doing or not doing. And they're really delightful. And her accent is just gorgeous, which adds how to the whole thing. How fascinating, though, that she sort of unlocked this sort of sacrosanct of the yeah. room of therapy, yes. Yes. obviously with permission, yes. and is making this accessible. Yes. It's quite a, yes. a novel thing. It's very clever. The ones I've listened to so far, many of the people have already been to marriage counselling and it hasn't worked. Some of them you can tell nothing's going to change for this yeah. couple and some of them you can tell that there's been a bit of a light bulb moment and they... Just see things differently. But good that she hasn't picked the ones that are just the light bulb moment. So it, yeah. it doesn't sound like it's been edited in the sense of I'm only going to release the no. ones that are the light bulb moments. Yeah. So, no, there's some... so it's quite genuine and authentic. Yeah. And... So she asks them to reflect and get back to her afterwards. And there was one I listened to the other day where the woman said, I think we'll just go on as we are. So that was quite sobering, but you could tell that that, woman was blaming everything on the husband. Mm. It was it was very interesting. But you don't feel sort of 
flat when you've listened to them? Not at all, not at all. I found them really uplifting. Because she's empowering. They're very uplifting because you learn so much. I think that's what it is. She brings so much to light. What was the name of it again? Where Should We Begin? Where Should We Begin? With Esther Perel. She's written books which have got great titles about infidelity. She did one about where the husband was suffering from impotence and she just completely reframed it and sort of said, well, where did you get this story from? Because that's not the issue. The impotence is not the issue at all. And really made you go, oh, well, what is the issue? (laughs) So I think she's great. Mm. And the other thing that I would really recommend is a feel-good movie that I went to see called Fisherman's Friends, which is part of the British Film Festival, and it's now got a wider release. And that's based on a true story about a group of London music executives who head off to... Port Isaac in Mm. Cornwall, which is where Doc Martin was filmed, and they're heading off for a Bucks party, and they come across a group of salty fishermen Mm. who sing sea shanties in their downtown. Oh, how wonderful. Yeah, gorgeous. And one of, or two of them, play a prank on one and say to him, you've got to sign them up for a record deal. And they send him off and tell him he's got to, don't come back until you've signed them up for a record deal. And it's quite difficult to do because there's 10 of them (laughs) and they don't want fame and fortune. He eventually does sign them up and it's the story of what happens to them once their first song is released. And the fact that it's based on a true story makes it even more delightful. It's got a great cast. It's got lots of familiar faces from all the great British BBC productions that we've known and loved. And there are some delightful scenes of the singing group, Fisherman's Friends, getting an entire pub in London full of people all singing sea shanties together. It's just such a lovely feel-good movie. So if you're wanting to watch something light, I would really recommend yeah, that no, one. Yeah, no, I saw it's it really advertised. Good. I thought I really am dying to see it. We really enjoyed today's episode and we hope you have too. You'll find a list of the books we've reviewed and anything else we've talked about today in the show notes. You'll also find some of the books featured on our Instagram page at diving underscore in underscore podcast. If you would like to share with us any books you've been diving into, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at hello at divingin.com. And wherever you listen to the Diving In podcast, Whatever platform you use, we would appreciate it if you would please subscribe and take a minute to rate and review us, because that will mean we can grow our audience. Breaking up, shaking up, working in, diving in, breaking up, shaping up, working in, diving in. So what have you been blowing into, Louise? Oops! <laughs> I'll do it again. (laughs) I'm so funny. (laughs) You are.